Good evening, everyone, and welcome to episode 3 of the R&D Project, the highly anticipated history of horror, part 1. Originally, this was intended to be our pilot episode. However, as you no doubt know by now, there were some technical glitches and we had to delay the episode for final edit. Thank you for being so patient. And now, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy Joey Petten from Dark Hills Gaming, myself, and my co-host Donnie, talk about horror from the silent era to the 1960s. We will catch you next week with a recap on Pennywise Lives, a Dark Hills gaming event, and look forward to the October event. Good evening, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the R&D Project. I am one of your hosts, Rob Nicholson, up here in New Jersey, and I am joined, as always, by... Donnie Sturges down here in Virginia. And before we introduce our first guest of the evening, um, I'd like to tell you a little bit about what we're going to be trying to accomplish here on the R&D project. Um, Donnie and I are both lovers of everything horror, everything pop culture, and just generally having fun. Um, Donnie and I were introduced um, at an event called Camp Blood, uh, run by Dark Counts Gaming, and... We got to spend 24 hours in an immersive horror film experience, um, which led to uh, a very, very long evening of talking about horror, talking about pop culture, sci-fi, pretty much anything and everything until about 3 o'clock, 3.30, yep. maybe even 4 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, it was pretty late. And, uh, it, it started a, a friendship that um, has grown over it's the past... Yeah. yeah, into into a bromance over the past six months. And um, I had this idea for a podcast that, you know, we had talked about, Donnie and I, and after um, after guesting on Scary Stories to Pot in the Dark, um, we decided that this was something that we wanted to do together. So we're here to entertain you. We're here to inform you, um, maybe even teach you something. And... Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself. Like I said before, my name is Rob Nicholson. Um, I'm from New Jersey. I'm a writer, an actor, um, singer. When I'm not doing my day job, which is working for a telecom as a business markets technician, which is not nearly as exciting as it sounds. Actually, it doesn't really sound exciting. Um, so that's a little bit about me. And I'm going to turn the mic over to Donnie and let him tell you a little bit about himself. My name is Donnie Sturges, and I am an alcoholic. I mean, sorry, wrong, wrong form. Damn it, I get those confused. Um, I'm a goofy guy. That's that's that sums it up in in a, just a few words. I um, also uh, am a writer and an actor and a producer uh, for movies for Darkstone Entertainment. Um, I also uh, do another podcast called. Uh, Hollywood Boulevard podcast, which is basically the last Monday of every month. And uh, when I'm not doing the fun stuff, I have a normal, boring 9 to 5, actually 7 to 4.30 job where I uh, test software for the Air Force as a civilian. So I got some, I mean, you know, it's it's it pays the bills. So... <laughs> And that's what we all really want in life. Yes. We just want to pay our bills. <laughs> and have a little fun on the side. Absolutely. So tonight we'll be talking about, um, I think, our first love, which is horror. And how horror has changed from the first 
film in horror, which was released in 1896 as a silent film yep. by Georges Méliès. And I hope I pronounced his name right. I hope you didn't. <laughs> and it is called Le Manoir du Diable. Mm. Again, released in 1896 and then re-released in the United States as The Haunted Castle, um, a silent film. And um, pretty great special effects considering when it was made. And then going all the way through the 30s and the 40s, the Universal Age, the Hammer Age, um, up into the 60s when Alfred Hitchcock kind of took over as well as George Romero, um, changed a little bit of the industry. And then into the 70s, which was exploitation films, um, things like I Spit on Your Grave, and then into the slasher era with Halloween, Friday the 13th, etc. And all the way up into the latest release that hit the movie theaters not so long ago, Ready or Not. So that is going to be our journey tonight. And joining us is a very, very special guest who is responsible for bringing Donnie and I together. He is the head writer for Dark Hills Gaming, Mr. Joseph Petten. Yo! Dark Hills in the house! Guess what, folks? I'm not running an event, nor am I writing a podcast or anything, so I don't have to be responsible. I got my Oreos, I got my milk, I got my Joe, and I'm here to have fun. But no, seriously, folks, seriously. Dark Hills Gaming is as awesome as these guys say. We run immersive horror events. We do uh, killer summer camps, literally. We're doing a Pennywise Lives It immersive experience. If you've ever wanted to be in a horror movie, you've got to come out and join the Dark Hills Gaming family. Um, yo, that's it. Love y'all. I second that. <laughs> I, I just want to say... Rob and I come in completely bland, like we're we're, we're like we're like fucking like um, we're, we're like hi, this is this is the this is the Rob and Donnie hour. We're here to tell you about things, and then Joey comes in and brings the party, and we're like, oh wait, that's right, we're supposed to have fun. What the fuck are we doing? Like we're Jesus, that was awesome. I mean, I'm, so, I don't have to be responsible for once, so. Business in the front and party in the back. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, folks. This podcast is the uh, is the mullet of podcasts. <laughs> so, for those of you who haven't turned off the podcast yet, <laughs> I promise you, we will get better. This <laughs> already. <laughs> This is already. We're, we're like we're like we're like Bill and Ted at the beginning of the first Bill and, at, at the end of the first Bill and Ted movie. It, they do get better. Am I Rufus? Am I Rufus? I think so. I think you are. <laughs> I'm either Rufus or Death. I'm <clears throat> yes, you could be Death. You could be Death. Oh man, <laughs> station. I'm a street sweeper, but sooner or later you're gonna dance with the Reaper. Get down with your bad selves. There you go. There you go. I'm sorry. So, the reason that I brought Joe on is because... um, He paid us. Yeah, no. no. (laughs) (laughs) 
It's because there's almost no other person that I have ever talked to about horror movies that has the the breadth and depth of knowledge that Joe has. Um, almost. What's that? Almost. <laughs> I'm like winking at Donnie, but we're doing a podcast, so the wink isn't working. So. Oh, no, no. I saw the wink. I saw it. Really, I did. <laughs> I'm, I'm winking back. Ugh. So, Joe, I'm going to start in 1896 with The House of the Devil, because I'm not pronouncing that French name again. I I wasn't alive by then, so... Right, right. I was 14. Um, (laughs) My parents would not allow me to go to the movies. Just because there was only one movie at that time. They were like, look, don't waste your your time. There's like one film. Exactly. Go, 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 go pick out the rutabaga in the backyard. We're hungry. (laughs) Now, one common thread that horror has and i know it sounds very very obvious is that it's meant to stir up an emotion Mm -hmm. that is supposed to be fear it's supposed to be horror terror um now rewinding to 1896 when probably most of the people the only thing they really had to worry about was like things like i guess typhoid and the plague and all those lovely lovely things that would kill you because pretty much anything could kill you back then. Uh, the common cold could kill you. You know, um, if you've ever played Oregon trail, you know, all the crap oh, could kill you. Goddamn dysentery. <laughs> all the dysentery. Um, so Joe, you, you were able to watch the silent film. Yep. And I just wanted to hear your take on it. Well, first and foremost, th- there is no take on it. You can't look at a, George Melier film and say, oh, that was good. That was bad. It was the first. It was the first thing to exist. It would be like watching a caveman draw like the first painting on the page <laughs> and then say, no, I guess that's okay. There's nothing else. <laughs> really doesn't matter because he was a genius you know he was the first person to say well fuck if i stop the camera remove someone and then start the camera they've disappeared and we have to remember this is at a time where people once ran from the theaters because they thought the train on the screen was going to come off screen so so while we watch something like the house of the devil and we go oh it's a bat on a string oh it's a skeleton like people at the time were like oh dear god it is it's the work of satan himself (laughs) a a fantastical magician from beyond the ages you know it's right right it it nothing else would exist without it and i'm not even talking about horror i'm talking about film yeah yeah i i can i can go that far as well um, you know, I, I, I have to say that obviously there was no fright factor. Um, you know, when, when you watch somebody get gutted on TV, you know, watching a bat fly out of nowhere is, um, is kind of like, eh, but, but I feel the same way as you. I appreciate the fact that he did bring the house of the devil to life on film. Um, it probably did terrify the shit out of some people, um, probably everybody that that you know saw it, and um, you know I don't know, 
I don't know how movie houses were, you know, back then. I don't know if this was in like a Nickelodeon. I don't know if this was actually in a movie house. These, um, these were in theaters. These were in theaters. But the the special effects, if we can even call them that, um, because they were, you know, <laughs> they were so far ahead of everything that had ever been done. Um, it, it's fantastic. Um, but again, you know, no, no fear factor for, you know, the grizzled veterans like us, but we can still appreciate it for what it is. And that is, like you said, the first. Um, so, yeah. Um, While we're on the topic, too, I want to say for anyone who might be interested in learning more about George Melier, who was one of the first filmmakers of our time, a great way to learn about him without feeling like you're learning is watching the film Hugo, which is a, a film all about Melier um, as played by Sir Ben Kingsley. So just recommending that for any film buffs who are interested. I just, I just want you to both to know that in the time that you guys were discussing it, I just watched the, the short film. Very good. <laughs> so I'm caught up now. If you crash a computer in the middle of our podcast, I will fly down to Virginia and kick your ass. Please. That, 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 that means a free Rob visit. Fuck, I'll take that. Yeah, Shit. That's true. That's true. Um, so uh, having, having just watched the, the, the three minutes and 17 seconds, here's what I'm going to say. So I, um, I, I got into doing TikTok uh, uh, little TikTok uh, videos. Um, my my uh, my friend John Johnson, who is the owner and director of Darkstone, has gotten into TikTok and has gotten has expanded his fan base through TikTok. So he's kind of gotten me into it. And I just want to say, watching the way this this film is edited, it's like the original TikTok video. Like it, they're doing the same tricks that I'm doing, <laughs> and I see other people doing in TikTok videos. Because the 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 editing uh, the tools you have to edit through TikTok are very limited, so you have to do the same kind of. So I'm just I'm watching this. I'm going, oh my god! Like this is like watching a, an old like an old timey TikTok video. What the hell? But I will say this: I, the um, very very for its time, it's very impressive. I can co- completely understand why you know being the first of its of, of its kind in, in, in as far as film and as far as horror goes. I can understand completely, like, nobody, since nobody's ever seen this before, is looking at that and just, like, looking aghast. And, yeah, probably even thinking, oh, my God, like, there are witches that made this or, like, the devil or something. Because looking through that, through that lens, that, those are some impressive effects. Like, some of the, some of the disappearing and reappearing is pretty, like, especially with the smoke and everything. There's one sequence in particular where the bat turns into, like, the devil or whatever. Yeah. I swear to God, the transition between the bat and the devil was so seamless, it looked like the bat spread its wings and turned, and, and it became a cape. And then the guy just kind of, like, appeared out of the cape. I was like, holy shit, how did you do that? So, I will say that, uh, yeah, for the for the first horror film, that's pretty fucking impressive. Yeah. No, I agree. He, he was very talented. There's, a, there's definitely a magic to it. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's it's one of the things that make you appreciate um, everything that's here now. Um, sure. I use as an example Walt Disney. And mm-hmm. I remember watching early, early cartoons of Walt Disney and not really, not really feeling it, not really understanding, um, not, not understanding how far 
the medium has come. Um, right. It's film, whether it's cartoons, whether it's, you know, anything, even music. Um, and then I went to uh, Disney World and I saw the uh, the Walt Disney story. It, it absolutely amazed me how far they've come since, you know, Mortimer Mouse and Steamboat mm-hmm. Willie and, you know, all of those things to where to, to like Mary Poppins, where animation was merged with film, um, you know, and then so on and so on and so on until we finally got what ended up, you know, uh, with Pixar and Toy Story and, and all those movies and just seeing how far the medium has come. Um, I will tell you what this movie did, what the house of the devil did for me was it made me want to go and see other silent films. Um, you know, I have to, I've been told I have to watch Nosferatu, um, which I really had never seen before. Uh, Joe. (laughs) And it's because I don't like reading movies. Oh, you're killing me. You're killing me reading. Oh my God. I'm sorry. Oh, but, First off, do you know how uh, much good you're missing out on? You are missing out on Guillermo del Toro. You are missing out on like some of the best French films in the world. But that aside, Nosferatu is not a film you have to read. It is a film that just like it exudes atmosphere. You don't even have to read the title cards in between the scenes to know what's going on. Everybody knows what happens in Nosferatu just by looking at those shots. Rob, you're killing me already. You're killing me already. <laughs> now, the other reason that I did bring Joe onto this podcast was to ream your ass. Correct. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, listen, I love Joe. Joe is awesome. Um, he is one of the best people in my life. And I love that he is able to make me do things that I otherwise would not probably do. And I came came into horror in the slasher era. Um, That makes sense. I never really watched any of the movies that, you know, we're probably, we're going to be talking about in the thirties. I mean, I've seen them, but I never really watched them. And there's a difference between seeing something and really, really watching. Sure. Sure. So, you know, I remember watching Psycho. I remember watching Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th. Um, you know, I, I remember those vividly, and they created the horror fan that is sitting here tonight. Mm-hmm. But I never, like, I always, I, I think my first experience back with with older movies was really probably um, one of the Abbott and Costello, you know, Abbott and Costello meet. Who did they meet? They met Frankenstein. They met the. They met the Mummy. They met the Invisible Man. And everyone, man. They 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 met Boris, the killer Boris Karloff. So, like to me, that wasn't. It just didn't feel like horror to me. Sure, sure. So, it is what it is. Now I remember, like Scooby Doo did episodes like that as well. Um, you know, where they had the the old creature feature characters that would right. pop up on the show. Um, I mean, I would argue, since we're already on the topic, I would argue that the Abbott and Costello films aren't 
horror. Like no, they're really not. They're, they're, they're comedy. They have Dracula in them. They have Frankenstein in them. They have the Wolfman and the Invisible Man and all that. But it's not meant to be frightening. But I right. would totally argue <clears throat> that Bella Lugosi's Dracula by Todd Browning, that um, mm-hmm. Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, the mm-hmm. Wolfman, especially the Wolfman and the Creature. The Wolfman, yeah. Yeah. I think those films were absolutely <clears throat> meant to terrify. And at the time period... They did. They absolutely did. You know, without teeth, without any special effects, Bella Lugosi drove fear into the heart of humans. Uh, right. Right. So, and, and so feeding off that, or going back to actually what I had said before was so being that I'm a, I don't know, let's Luddite. say. No, not Luddite's not the word. That's not the right word. Heathen. <laughs> no. So let's just say as a 10 year old or 11 year old, you know, mom or dad pop on Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, this is funny. You know, it's not scary or whatever. So then I have the opportunity to see Frankenstein, the same universal Frankenstein, but without Abbott and Costello doesn't interest me because of what I had seen before. It's like, if you see, um, a sequel to a movie and you know, you hadn't seen the original and the sequel sucked, there might be a chance that you don't go see the original. Yeah. If you understand that, that, that train of logic. So actually I totally get that. Cause I had something like that happen with, um, I had that happen twice. Um, I saw poltergeist two before I saw the first poltergeist. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, it's, a, it, it is what it is. I mean, I love poltergeist now. Like I, I didn't, it didn't turn me off to the film completely, but it was a long, long time before I turned. I got, I got around to watching that first Poltergeist because of the second Poltergeist. Because uh, it was on cable like all the time. And the other one was Jaws four. I saw Jaws four before I saw any of the other Jaws movies. Oh, God. oh Jesus! <laughs> and so for that was like my. And so I totally get where you're coming from. I totally get it. I really do. So um, it, it, it's tough, you know, right. when that's what you've been exposed to, and obviously. Um, we know we become what we're exposed to. So that that's where our fandom comes from. You know, it's- you know, obviously if no one has turned you on to something, you're not going to be turned on, but here's what I will say. Having people like Joe, having people like Donnie um, in my life makes me want to go and see, see this stuff. And actually I can't go and see it. I wish there was a creature feature locally, um, or I could go into a movie theater and see something because with ADD, uh, you know, if that's what you want to call it, I think we all have that as adults. It's very, very hard for me to sit down anymore and look at, you know, something on my computer and watch it. Um, which is why the silent film for three and a half minutes or so, that was perfect. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I have a desire now to see that, you know, and see where, see where that came from. You so. Rob, you got to try a classic experience. I'll I'll take you sometime. You got to they do like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or they do Nosferatu. You go in a theater, they play it and they have a live organist or a live symphony doing the music for it and it is fucking amazing. There really is something about that atmosphere. It's kind of like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. If you just put it on and watch it at home, you're not going to get the full effect. But when you get to the theater 
and you're there with people and you're not just seeing it, but living it, it'll change everything. You've got to try a silent film experience. Got it. I, yeah, I, th- I, I think I will take you up on that offer. So we know 1896, um, yeah. House of the Devil. One, 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 one thing I will say, just to interject, is unfortunately they don't do it anymore. But because uh, I live basically like a half an hour from Bush Gardens, Williamsburg. Um, and they used to do this because they, they do this thing every year called hallow scream, which is basically they, they decorate the park for Halloween and they have basically, they turn some of the rides into walk through haunted houses and shit. Um, but one of the things that they used to do that they don't do anymore, which is unfortunate is they had a section in, in Italy where they would have a big screen up and they would just show silent horror films because they're in public domain. And so they would show Nosferatu. They would show the cabinet of Dr. uh, Caligari and everything. And so it's unfortunate because I love that aspect because when you walk through there, you would see that you could sit and like, and and like have a meal. uh, One of the, like you could eat from the, from the eatery in Italy or whatever and sit there and just watch these movies. And of course, you know, with the, with the ambiance around you, like it was perfect, the perfect atmosphere, you know? And so unfortunately they don't do that anymore, but I will say this. I have, uh, all of the Universal Monsters on Blu-ray, and I am uh, I, the, the the plan at this point is to stay at Rob's place the night before uh, the, uh, the 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 It uh, immersive horror experience. So I might bring those up with me, and if we have time and the and the desire, I might pop. We might just pop in a couple. Because the nice thing about those movies is they're not they're not even like ninety minutes long. Right. They're like they're they're barely above an hour. So. You know, it's it's. I think Dracula might be the longest of the of of, of all of them, but um, which is, which is, but yeah, we could definitely. I mean, Dracula is kind of the one that Rob needs to watch most. Sure, sure, yeah. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't know why you would say that. Where Rob, if you fuck this up, if you fuck this, up, oh. <laughs> do, do you realize how many people wanted to take pictures with me when I was at the, the uh, Comic Con? Or mega monster, monster, whatever the hell it was called. <laughs> All of them. And you know I love you. Yes, I will be better than perfect. Better than perfect. No worries. No worries. Oh, okay. And just okay. And, and, and just just a quick and another quick sidebar. You talking about Disney made me realize that we should do an episode uh, about uh, the hi- history of Disney and their association with horror because they do have. Uh, a pretty interesting uh, association with horror uh, over the oh, well, not not so much. Re- well, you know, actually, yeah, they do even recently. But like, we should definitely cover that at some point because I would say you, when you were talking about that, I was thinking, oh my god, because like the haunted mansion, you, you got like um, if you got like the the, the headless horseman. If you um, if, you know, if you guys do a haunted mansion episode without me, we're done. We're done. oh no 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 oh stay in that right. Joey, I promise you. It, it won't be just a haunted mansion, but there definitely will be a haunted mansion talk involved. But I'm just what? thinking, like, like I'm thinking about the, the the one one of my favorite Mickey Mouse shorts is the one where Mickey, Donald, and Goofy are ghost hunters. Yeah, that's a great one. That is yep. such a great cartoon. I fucking love it to death. I used to have I used to have a little um, uh, when I was a kid. I had I had one of these little uh, projector things. It wasn't a projector, but like you 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 looked in like it had an eyepiece that you looked into and you rotated. Uh, this little dial on the side, and it would play. Uh, it would play little like movies or clips of movies and stuff, but there was no sound. 
And one of the one of the little clips that it, it had on one of the it had a little cartridge that you could put in. And one of the cartridges was that cartoon, and I would watch that all the time because you didn't need sound because it, it like everything that was on the screen pretty much you know like it told itself. Um, to this day, that's probably one of my favorite, probably if not my favorite Mickey Mouse uh, short, just because of that element. So we definitely need to do an episode that talks about like uh, Disney's association with horror and stuff. Um, I I don't think Joe realizes how many times he's going to be asked to. Oh yeah, I don't part in this podcast. Oh yeah, I don't. I don't think he knows either. He's he's almost an unofficial third member at this point. (laughs) Well, you know, we that's that's because he brought us together. So he did. It's only fair. Any hooser. (laughs) (laughs) Can we hop back to silent films real quick? Because I want to talk. Yes, sir. One of the things I appreciate most about silent films, especially about the silent horror, and it is the acting. I. You know, we we live in a world that just doesn't understand what it took to be a silent film star. You know, it, it wasn't really acting, not yet. You, you literally did not have dialogue. Uh, right. The the films, both films, both the films, the artist and Singing in the Rain poke fun at it. But there was so much like the physicality that it took to. Mm-hmm. To show yourself on on uh, on such crude early cameras, basically had to be a master of your own body. You had to be like a Jim Carrey level uh, fucking yogi with your own body. And Charlie Cha- Charlie Chaplin was good, but when you look at the horror stars, when you look at people like Max Shrek, who for all mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes, he was a vampire. I'm sorry. Oh yeah, absolutely. The, that role was because of him, and then um, the 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 biggest of them all, which was um, Lon Chaney. Uh, yep, Phantom of the Opera, Hunchback of Notre Dame, um, Phantom of the Opera. He malformed his face with piano wire. He yep, took yes. piano wire and wrapped it around his face until it was as disgusting as what we see in the film. That, yep. it, I mean, that's that's insanely fucked up, but it's also commitment, and it's so memorable. When you think of the Phantom of the Opera, you think of that face. You know, there's no what, way around. Which, which ones? Which one's the one that he did that that got lost? I I don't know that much. I'm... Uh, London London After Midnight. That's what it was. Um, it was a it's a it's a long lost Lon Chaney film uh, called London After Midnight. He was a vampire. Uh, it was the one where he basically did. He had to like he really, really was committed like to his craft because he, he for the makeup for that one he did something to where he uh, had to put things around his eyes to make them look sunken and like it was another one of those things where if he if he kept it in for too long or kept it on for too long like it would like start to do like it would start to hurt and do damage to his face but it was um it's it's one of those it's one of those horror movies that's lost to time like there's only stills of it. Uh, it basically, it's like uh, the, the 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 mouthpiece that he used for his teeth. All of the teeth are like are, are like are almost like needles. Uh, I actually have a I have a fright rag shirt that has him uh, in uh, in that uh, in that outfit. Um, and it's just it's one of those movies where I wish we didn't. Well, we wish, I wish we had it because that's one I would love to have seen. But it's like one of the earliest vampire. Uh, I don't, it doesn't predate Nosferatu, but it is it is like. He's like one of the major, like uh, major studio attempts at a vampire film before Dracula, 
Um, and unfortunately, we will never see it because it's completely gone, gone from time. It's it's just like I said, all we have left are are I think like stills and stuff like that. But it was called London After Midnight, um, and it's unfortunate because that's uh, yeah, it's it's so cool. And the other thing I wanted to mention too is that um, the other thing that they brought, the other thing like you were saying, the physicality uh, that they brought to the silent film era. Uh, another reason for that was because these are all people who were originally stage actors. Right. So Correct. they were used to they were used to the big time. You have to overdo it. You have to you have to over exaggerate your movements and stuff because you're you know. So they, as far as they knew, this was just another type of stage acting. Um, and so and that and that and that carried all the way into even like the early sound pictures too. Like even like the early the early Universal Horror and stuff. Uh, a lot of people were still treating movies as like oh these are just stage productions, but we're filming it. Um, but that's, that's, I, I, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, not at all. And, and I will say as an actor, um, you know, I've done both, both mediums. Um, I've been on stage and I've been, you know, in in front of the camera. And when I, when I filmed my first indie film, um, which was girl in the cornfield Two, it's on Amazon prime, please check it out. Um, it, it was really, really nice, a nice change of pace to be able to look at a script real quick and then go out. And if I didn't say the lines right, I could go back off and take a look at the lines again or, mm-hmm. you know, listening to the director and and changing something on the fly. Um, that was a nice change of pace because, you know, when that curtain goes up and you've got 200 people or more sitting there staring at you and you've got to do your thing, yeah. there's no room for mess ups. Um, so, yeah, I mean, most... I think most really, really good actors, especially of that day, everybody came from the came from the stage, um, came from vaudeville, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were used to, you know, really, really having to be, you know, balls to the wall, ready to go, um, very emotive, um, j- just that type of, of persona. They they had to be ready to do that. Um, so I agree with you, Lon Chaney. One hundred percent. First of all, he, he, the face only a mother could love. Um, yeah, he he carried he carried American horror um, right. during that era. Um, you know, which does bring us into the Universal Times in the nineteen thirties, and that was Universal was cranking them out as quick as people could go in and see them. Um, it was the first big boom of horror. Yeah, no, it was. It, it, they, you know, the the, the studios were were were, clamped, were chomping at the bit, um, and of course you had, um, you know, Dracula and Frankenstein came out both in 1931, uh, which basically were, were were two of the biggest. Uh, they were they were they, they pretty much were the, what launched the whole thing. They're still the. Um, I mean, Dracula and Frankenstein are the Batman and Superman of the horror world. Yes. When you really, oh, well, they really are. To the point where people still argue, like, what movie's better? What book is better, Dracula or Frankenstein? You know, right. they are. Right. They are where it begins. Right. What, what's what's funny about the twenties is that the country that was very very responsible for um, some of the most early and really great horror was Germany. Yep. And as we know, in the thirties, what happened to Germany? They started getting overtaken by the Nazis. Yep. yep. 
And that, that made filmmakers leave the country. So that opened up the door really for, for companies like universal to basically overtake everything and, and put out what they put out. Um, there, there's one thing I, I, I kind of want to point out real quick. I don't have too much evidence behind this. This was something I, I read a little bit up on. But if you look at the history of horror, the biggest booms of horror almost always seem to coincide with the biggest movements in fascism. So yes. had the universal boom came about right before World War II. Then you had slasher films of the 1980s. That's when fucking Reagan and Thatcher were in their prime. Yep. And now we are in, again, one of the biggest horror booms of all time. Just saying. I remember, little... I, I do remember you you discussing that with one of your panelists on Scary Stories to Pod in the Dark, if I remember correctly. Um, I don't know if it was Fright School or, or not. Um, but yeah, was, I, what's it was, that? It was, it was the lovely folks at Fright School, which is another amazing horror podcast. Check it out. <laughs> but yeah, well, I mean, I, you're right because we need during times like that we need to lose ourselves in another type of immersion, um, and and normally that medium is going to be something like you know movies. Um, we all know the, the the biggest comedians the biggest comedians thrive off political discourse, sure. um, and they they do very very well in times like these. Um, and, and, and it's great. I mean, I remember during the, and, and I'm not going to get into politics or political affiliation, but during the, you know, period of Obama being president, comedy was completely different. And in fact, a lot of it changed and lost some of its edge, in my opinion. Um, you know, the I'm a very sociopolitical comedy guy. That's the kind of comedy that hits me. Um, current event comp- comedy, topical comedy. Um, don't get me wrong. I love an Eddie Murphy. I love a Mitch Hedberg, rest in peace. Um, but the type of comedy that hits me is, is stuff that is social hard hitting. Um, and normally you don't get that from a conservative side. You're, you're going to get that from the liberal side. So when liberals in charge, you don't really see as much of it or they just rehash certain things. But when a conservative is in charge and a liberal can go after that, that's where, you know, to me, gold comedy comes from. So, yes. So getting back to the horror aspect of it. Yeah, Joe, I mean, that's, that's really, that's been a recurring theme over and over and over and over again. Well, um, throughout the years, I I will say this. I, I don't, I, I, though I agree with you, Joe, I don't think it's exclusive uh, to fascism because you also got to take into consideration that like the universal horror uh, came out as a response to uh, the depression um, because, you know, basically everybody was suffering. And so horror movies were, were, were like the outlet. We're like, Hey, look at this horrible stuff going on on the screen. It helps me forget about the misery that I'm going through in my life for a while. Right. And like, in, in, in you know, again, like the, the, the slasher films of the seventies or the, you know, the, 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 the uh, exploitation films of the, of the early seventies and stuff came out of Vietnam and the horrors that were going on there, which I guess, you know, it can be tied into fascism. And then of course, you know, you go into like, um, uh, the horror movies of like the, the mid to late nine or yeah, the mid to late nineties, um, basically coming out of nine 11. There's a lot, a lot of horror movies like torture porn and stuff like that, 
right. were were elements that came out of 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 you know based on what happened on nine eleven. So I mean, but I I don't disagree with you. I think I think you're right. But I think I think there's that's that's part of the the puzzle. I think I think fascism is part of it, but not the whole. Perhaps it's just that horror within itself is the purest reflection of society's darkest sides. You know, horror. Is, oh yeah, horror is climax at its simplest. It's here's a monster and let's kill it. And since yeah. good art is a reflection of society, horror right. is probably the best mirror because it says, well, fuck, what are our current monsters and how do we put that on screen? Count Orlock is absolutely a fucking Nazi. I, <laughs> I, watch that again. He is a fucking Nazi, okay? I, I no again. I I completely agree with you. Um, in fact, uh, I was I, I was the research that I did do, and I did not know this, but um, the Wolfman in the 1940s is actually uh, was actually born out of the uh, out of fear of the Nazi Party, really? um, because uh, Hitler was using uh, the wolf as uh, in in their symbolism a lot. Yeah. And so basically the Wolfman was basically like the, the, the response to that, uh, to that fear, which I didn't know that before. I was like, holy shit, that's a, that's amazing. So yeah, that, that the Wolfman specifically is very much a response to fascism. <laughs> and, and I will say the thirties also brought us our first zombie movie, which I did not know about. Um, called White Zombie. So White Zombie. Yep. There's yeah. a there's another movie for anyone who hasn't seen it. I'm sure that probably is in in the domain of YouTube um, now. I mean, I think you can find pretty much everything on oh, yeah. YouTube. Now, now, granted, it it wasn't it wasn't the modern day version of zombieism. It, it was it was more the the voodoo zombie stuff uh, that was that was big during that time. Um, the, the modern day zombie wouldn't have been to play until Romero back in, you know, basically in the late 60s. We talked a little bit about Frankenstein and Dracula already, and that was a big deal. We we definitely, like, Dracula makes sense. And I want to point out again Todd Browning. Todd Browning came out with Dracula in 1931, and the world was set yep. on fire. And part of that was due to the fact of Bela Lugosi. Bela Lugosi was the man. He played Dracula on stage. He's terrified people on mm -hmm. stage. Very little makeup, no blood, no teeth. He was the fucking man, and Todd Browning helped bring that to the screen. And then, a year later, because they said, Todd Browning, what do you want to do next? You can do whatever you want to do. And Todd Browning said, Freaks. I want to make a movie about Freaks starring actual oh, yeah. freaks. And, you know, if, if you're a horror aficionado, I feel like you hear the name freaks, the film freaks tossed about here and there. But normal people don't know nope. about freaks in more ways than one, really. Um, and it truly, it it's an amazing film. It's not a supernatural film. It stars real people who were real freaks in real sideshows. It is, it is, to this day, horrifying. I have wa I've watched it, and it still scares me. Um, just just everything that's happening in there. Like there's freaks, but the freaks aren't the monsters. Um, for those of you who've never seen the film, the whole plot of the film is there's a bunch of freaks. One of the freaks basically comes into some money. He meets a normal woman who quote unquote falls in right. love with him. That leads to um, 
if anyone has ever heard Google Gobble One of mm-hmm. Us, that, that freaks is where that film comes from. So they basically accept her into their lifestyle um, only to find out that she's marrying their friend for money. Uh, and the, 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 the big moment of the film, this huge, terrifying moment, is the freaks decide to get revenge on her by turning her into a freak. They, they manually mutilate her with knives. And there's this amazing shot, this scene where each of the freaks in, in all their freakish glory is passing from like their tent to her tent to mutilate her. And you see each one, you see the big ones and the small ones. And the one that terrifies me is there's this person called the snake man. No arm. Yeah, he's just just a torso, and he's snaking his way into this woman's like tent with a knife in his mouth, and just the dedication to their friend and to it's it, it's so weird because yes, she's the bad guy, but what they do to her is kind of fucking unforgivable. But at the same time, the film touches upon what people have done to them, like what society has done to them because of how they look. I can't I can't express how amazing this film is. And if you want to be horrified, Rob, by black and white, you got to watch it. But most importantly, I need to point out that because of it, Todd Browning lost everything. He went from the top of the fucking castle with Dracula to nothing. Freaks was such a horrifying film. It repelled so many people that Todd Browning lost everything because of it. And honestly, I think it's one of the reasons why it needs to not only be seen and hailed, hailed above Dracula, in my opinion. Sorry, I didn't mean to go on a rant. (laughs) No, no, fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, that's that's what we're here for. Um, You know, I had never heard about it, uh, except for the fact that it was very, very controversial. Um, now I know why, <laughs> and, uh, that it's going to be on my list of, of things to watch. Yeah. It's funny. I, um, <laughs> I learned that from an episode of clerks, the animated series before I saw that about free. Yeah. The there, there's, yeah, there's an episode of clerks, the animated series where there's a, uh, where there's a couple of, they, they look just like the, the, the bald headed, the, but they, they come into the store and go, what of us, what of us, <laughs> And that was what got me to – I ended up watching the movie after that because of that reference. I was like, what is this from? So I looked it up, and I was like, oh, shit, I need to watch this. And then I did, and I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. Out of all the Universal Monsters, the Wolfman is my favorite. Um, same, same. I just I, – I love um, – Lon Chaney Jr. is, is amazing. Um, you know, the, the, the – the way he wrestles with the pain and anguish of, of knowing that he's going to transform. I love the makeup effects for the Wolfman. I love the atmosphere of the Wolfman. I, I love everything about it. Um, I just love the, the idea of a man transforming into something else has always appealed to me too as a kid. That that's that's what got me into li- liking werewolves was basically the Wolfman. Uh, and I'll and I'll even th- throw out my own backstory here since you know uh, we've already covered that um, you know Rob came into horror through slasher films. Uh, you know, the late 60s and 70s. Um, I grew up with the Universal Monsters, even though they were, you know, they came out way before I was born. I was born 75. But growing up, like, Universal Monsters were on TV, like, all the time. Like, it was, you know, 
Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein was definitely one of the one of the one of the things that I remember seeing as a kid. And I and that's probably my favorite Abbott and Costello movie to this day. Um, I, I absolutely adore Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Um, and the the only the only other time that Bela Lugosi played Dracula in the films, which pisses me off because you know apparently they didn't want him back. Uh, and we and as much as I as much as I love uh, Carradine. In other things, I hate his portrayal of Dracula. Um, he just it, it it doesn't seem right. He's he's like a Western Dracula. I just in in, in you know in the uh, the House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula, uh, I'm just not a huge fan of of, of Carradine's portrayal. Um, I mean, if we're if we're talking about like Hammer Dracula, it's it's fucking oh absolutely absolutely. Way. Um, but when we're going with this universal, like it's like it just it, it pains me that we didn't get consistency with with Bella Lugosi in the Dracula um, role because we should have that that should have been they they should have kept him from the very beginning. Um, but anyway, so like yeah, I grew up with the Universal Monsters. I mean, I I um, um, watched them all the time growing up. They were they were big. Um, the uh, the the big thing in the in the early eighties was the Crestwood. Uh, the Crestwood series of horror books. Um, there were these little, uh, small little tomes that you could check out of your local library and school and everything. Had an orange back. Oh, my God, I know exactly what you mean. Oh, my God, yes. I know exactly these books you're fucking talking about. I grew yes, up on Yes, these. you did. You better have. <laughs> but, yes, the, the, Crest, the Crestwood series of horror books. Each one was like there was one about Dracula, there was one about Frankenstein, the Wolfman, the Mad Scientist, Godzilla, and what they were is they weren't yeah. very long, but they told you everything you needed to know about the the about monsters in film. So like the Dracula one, yeah. it went it, you know it went all the way back to the very first you know Nosferatu and everything. It talked about London after you know London uh, um, after midnight and everything, and. For, for for not having very many pages, this thing was chock full of information for somebody that was in like second and third grade. They told you everything you needed right. to know, and I I became so enamored with these books. Um, in fact, I found I found them on Amazon. They're kind of pricey because they're so out of print. But I managed to find the, the three main ones. I found I managed to find Frankenstein, Dracula, and Wolfman. And I paid I think like fifty bucks a piece for them. Uh, but it was well worth it because it's a, it's a piece of my childhood. Well, I became fascinated with horror in general uh, because of these books. Uh, and at that point in time, it got me into like, you know, reading like um, uh, they were still putting out like um, uh, uh, like like horror books, like uh, Tales from the Crypt and like like comic books and stuff like that. Anyway, I'm, 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 I'm getting off track here. But anyway, I went, my point was is. The Universal Monsters, that's, that's the real reason why I love them so much is because I grew up with them. And so, like I said, I, I completely understand why Rob, uh, you know, has a different viewpoint because of, of, of how he was brought into horror. But that's how I was brought in. I, was, I don't understand that shit at all. <laughs> I do not understand that shit at all. Not, not only did I have, like, those books like you did, and, and my dad. My dad was like, oh, Dracula, yeah. man. When they would come on sci-fi we would watch mm -hmm. them the late night like chiller thriller feature oh, yeah, films yeah. like or, or i think when i was a kid they were called like i don't know like the fucking golden hour films or the 1 a.m films it was all the shit that they could get for really cheap and they put them on it like horror show hosts loved them. um 
one of the things I absolutely love about the Universal Monsters, really, because what, what they're doing is they're bridging horror from folklore into yep. film. You know, they're, they're, they're taking things like the vampire, like the werewolf, like Frankenstein, this big, important novel, and they're putting it on the screen for people to see. And, and it's like it is the evolution uh, of fear. Um, it, it, they're just they they are like the Mount Rushmore of Absolutely. horror, you know. It's Dracula, Frankenstein, Wolfman, and the mm-hmm. creature. And I can I can agree with that. Even being someone that wasn't really a fan <laughs> of those movies. <laughs> We uh, can we talk about Bride of Frankenstein now? Because that's absolutely, I love Bride. Uh, Bride is my favorite for so many reasons. Um, the first is that it's one of the oldest films I can remember that totally suffers from sequelitis. Like you know, they were sitting there and they were like, "Fuck, how can we up the ante on Frankenstein? How can we make it crazier?" I know, two mad scientists. <gasps> oh my god! Like. I love it. it. It has a scene where a mad scientist made a mermaid, but she's only the size of like a fucking action figure. So he literally pulls this mermaid out of his purse. It's brilliant. Um, but the second reason I love Bride of Frankenstein is I actually think it may be the deepest of the universal films. The original Frankenstein is, in my opinion, it's a straight up horror film. You know, it doesn't really have the themes, dead people brought back to life, little girl killed, we have to stop the monster. But Bride of Frankenstein deals so much with the creature's feeling of loneliness, his inability to communicate, his inability to... To feel, you know, uh, that's it's also a more faithful adaptation of the book, too. Yeah, yeah. You've got the the blind man mm-hmm. befriending him in that one scene, which is it, it's absolutely beautiful. Um, but then you you have the ending, you know, where um, because the plot comes down to Frankenstein has learned his lesson. Doctor Frankenstein has learned his lesson from the first film, but then this other mad scientist comes up and he's like, we can do it again and we can do it better and no one will die. He's wrong, of course, but Frankenstein gets lulled into this false sense of mad scientist security. So they uh, decide to build um, the bride of Frankenstein. They decide to build the creature, uh, a, a, a woman, so that he can no longer be alone. Um, and as the film progresses, you find out that both Dr. Frankenstein and his creation, the monster, are really just these sad, lonely victims of circumstance uh, versus uh, this other scientist who is like this cruel warp. He, he warps nature. Um, and, and the fact that uh, even the two creatures represent different things because Frankenstein represents... Uh, pieces of the dead that were brought back to life. Right. So it's a new beginning. But Elsa Lancaster's bride was murdered yep. to bring her back to life. So she really represents this horrific sin. So the ending where she gets off the table and sees Frankenstein and screams, there's so yep. much fucking power in that. There's so much being said there. And then Frankenstein's acceptance 
that he is a monster, whether he wants to be or not. And his, his final redemptive act of saving Dr. Frankenstein and his, his love is, I just think there's so much going on with that film. It is above and beyond oh, all the universal films, even if it is campiest. And then they recreated that scene in uh, Star Wars episode <laughs> six. And, and, and there, there's two other, there's two other, uh, I think major, um, uh, elements to that for, to bright as well one that's it's the only frankenstein film if i remember correctly it's the only frankenstein film in the series where frankenstein talks or the creature or the monster or whatever yep. um and two this is when like they started to put like humor into the universal monsters um because like that whole scene where where dr pretorius you know brings dr frankenstein in and he shows them all the other little people that he created you know you have the and then, of course, that whole that whole really weird, like, out-of-place sequence where he has these little tiny people in jars, and the king is so fucking horny yeah. that he keeps trying to get out of the jar yeah. to fuck the mermaid. And his little shrew queen oh. of a wife is, like, like fucking, like, angry and just, like, shrewing at him the entire fucking time. It's such a weird, out-of-place moment in the entire film, but for some reason, I love it to death. It's such a... It's, it's, I don't know why it is... It's so weird... But you're right. There, there's a lot of layers, and I think I think part of the reason is because it, it's more uh, it more closely hues to the source material in the book, um, and so there is a lot of uh, a lot of uh, layers to the story and a lot more nuance to the performances and everything. Um, I think I think it's jeez, ah, I don't. I think it might I think it might be Karloff's better performance as the creature than in the first one. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. There's yeah. so much heart going on there. That Karloff was an, an oh, underrated sure was. actor, unfortunately. He was so good at Frankenstein that that's all right. they wanted from him. But he was a real right. true actor, and unfortunately, playing Frankenstein kind of ruined his career. I will say this: like that, um, that that final line of his at the end of Bride, "We belong dead." Like, God damn, is that yeah. chilling. It is so good. It's amazing. It's beautiful. There's one more Universal Monster I want to talk about. Okay. It's, second, it's like my second favorite, and it's the creature. Oh, yeah, the creature the black, from the Black Lagoon. The, the creature from the Black Lagoon it, it comes in at the tail end, really, of Universal's success. It's one mm-hmm. of the last truly successful, uh, like, like when you think of the Universal Monsters, it's one of those last ones. Mm-hmm. But and and this 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 is all new to me. Um, the I liked the creature when I was younger because I, I I don't know I just remember watching not just the film but the whole trilogy. I couldn't sleep one night and I stayed up and on the Sci Fi Channel back when it was spelled S E I F I mm-hmm. on the Sci Fi Channel they had the Creature from the Black Lagoon trilogy. Oh. And, it wowed me. And I, I really think it is, at, at, you know, all the Universal films got sequels, but mm-hmm. I think The Creatures ha- is the only one that has a good trilogy. Um, uh, movie one, they find the creature and they kind of fuck up his life. Movie two, they take the creature out of the Amazon and take him to SeaWorld, which is brilliant. It is just a, a great metaphor for how fucked up SeaWorld is. Right. And then number three they find the creature and try to turn him into a human and he ends up dying because of that, which it's, right. sad. it's as sad as, as Frankenstein is. 
Um, but I just liked it because it was a monster and it was kind of creepy. The the shots of like the woman swimming and the creature swimming underneath her frightened me when I was a kid. Um, but years later, not years later, like a couple weeks ago, basically. No, that's not even true. Let's say like a year, within the past two years, I've grown a whole new respect for the film because of A, Guillermo del Toro. Guillermo del Toro has a completely different take on the creature from the Black Lagoon. He talks about it so often, and you could just go see The Shape of Water and be like, oh, this is what Guillermo del Toro saw when he saw the creature. He saw, right. saw romance and love between outcasts, not not horror. But um, after that, I, I was watching this great documentary called Horror Noir. Uh, it's currently available on Shudder. And what it is, is it's a history of black horror. And specifically with like the creature from the Black Lagoon, but it also applies to films like King Kong. Um, they described something I'd never heard before, the other. So hmm. for, for a, a very long period of time, black people were absent from horror films. Uh, very specifically, this universal boom. You know, we had all these films being made, little to no black people. And well, it was the 30s. Yes, but <laughs> it's a whole socioeconomic racial thing. But the point being made in the documentary was that black people were in those films, but the black people were King Kong. The black people were the creature from the Black Lagoon. They were these quote unquote monsters found in the jungle. Right. So usually where the population was predominantly colored people. Um, the creature from the, I mean, black people have always been referred to as apes. So that's where King Kong comes in and the creature from the black lagoon. He's got huge lips. Um, so there's this whole thing where um, they believe what was happening was that white people who were terrible were taking black people and making them into the monsters. And it's not really a coincidence that both King Kong and the creature from the Black Lagoon, the most dangerous thing about them is that they want to steal your blonde white woman. It's true. Um, so watching it now, watching the creature from the Black Lagoon, the story of white people going into a jungle and claiming... Uh, that a race that they found there is monstrous is the perfect allegory for for colonialism, really. You know, mm. when people go somewhere, they deem something a monster, and then they destroy it. And then even in the subsequent films, they take the monster, quote-unquote monster, out of its home to SeaWorld, where it slowly dies in captivity, not unlike slavery. And then finally, the third film where they mutilate the creature to turn it into a human and it ends up dying. Right. An allegory for um, all the terrible things that white people have done to minorities in, right. as an excuse of, of making them better or basically turning them into white people. Um, so the same way that I feel that Bride of Frankenstein does an amazing job of zeroing in on these beautiful themes. I think the Creature from the Black Lagoon trilogy is so... It, it just goes beyond being three films. It is it is this 
almost perfect allegory. I mean, the creature isn't the monster. It's just not the monster. Just like King Kong, it's not the monster. And I think that's what makes it amazing. All right, I'm done. Guys, stop letting me fucking monologue. <laughs> I don't think we can stop you. No, no. There's, there's, you know what? There's, there's no stopping you. And that, and that's fine. I mean, you are a you are a veritable encyclopedia of especially old time horror, which, as I said in the beginning, is why I wanted you on this specific podcast. Um, you know, this specific episode because of your knowledge of that and my. I'm not gonna. I'll I'll say lack of understanding of the same things that you understand. So we'll just go with that. <laughs> I, I will. I will say this because I, I do. I do want to. I do want to chime in uh, on on Joe's um, on, on on Joey's uh, rant there. Um, uh, that you you make really really good points, especially in the in the case of the creature. Because if you think about it, creature from the Black Lagoon was the last year of the Universal monsters, but it was it didn't it it didn't actually happen until the 1950s. Like, and which which again. Um, you talking about cre- the creature actually it would actually worked out perfectly because it helps us segue into the the, the horror films of the fifties and sixties when uh, when all, when everybody else was doing you know basically uh, atomic fallout uh, you know because the because the time period changed and people were now the the, the you know the cold war was starting um, yeah. the the you know we just dropped the bomb on uh, on Japan. Yep. Um, and so like everybody was worried about nuclear fallout and everybody was worried, worried about the bomb and everything. So everybody else is now we were going into the 1950s, uh, sci-fi B movies with aliens coming down and giant ants and shit. But out of all that universal took one last swing at a creature and, and, and basically did the creature for the black lagoon. And I guess the tie in that I want to do is, is y- your, your allegory is, 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 is definitely fitting because, that was right around the time of the civil rights movement had just started. Yeah. Um, so that, that actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, cause I'd never thought about that before that, you know, that comparison between the creature and, and, you know, basically that, uh, you know, the, uh, the racial segregation and, and the, in everything. But yeah, thinking about that now, it's like, you're, you're right. Because it, it came right around the time that the civil rights movement was, was, was getting it underway. So of course there was a lot of fear there. Um, think, think about it as well, because, you know, the fifties really started the cold war, obviously. Um, right. And it was probably the first time that we were ever afraid of the Russians. Um, mm-hmm. you know, so everything, there's a lot of invasion type movies, um, alien type movies in, in the fifties. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the cold war obviously was, was the start of the nuclear generation. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, Everything in the 50s does seem, not everything, but the majority of the films that came out in the 50s tend to deal with shit like that. You know, the, the gigantic ants that are going to get you, you know, the, the, the mice that, you know, grow up to be these, you know, 40 foot tall rats. I mean, you know, Godzilla. that's really Godzilla. what it's about. And, you know, that trends more to, to more to sci-fi. I mean, a lot of people do consider sci-fi slash horror as like this hybrid Um, Mm. but to me, um, the fifties did not, it did not lend itself well to what would ultimately become horror or what it would ultimately make horror what it is today. All right, Rob, 
Here's where I come in and get angry at you. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> let, me go get some, let me get some popcorn first. I said the Here's, majority, by the way. <laughs> no, no, it's like, I get I get what you're saying. You know, we, we take this turn from, like, the supernatural into the atomic age, into the giant ants and the blob and Godzilla and the crawling eye and all that stuff. Here's why I actually think that period, even though the films themselves aren't as terrifying, they're not as horrific as the ones that came before it, um, like torture porn uh, and like how torture porn is a response to our own subconscious guilt for 9-11, like like you mentioned, Donnie, uh, them, the crawling eye, Godzilla, is our subconscious response to our guilt for killing so many people with an atomic weapon. But it, it even goes beyond that because we start to see in these films a trend where Earth fights back because we fucked up. Right. The giants, the giant eyes, the giant spiders, all the giant animals, that's Mother Nature turning on us because we turned on Mother Nature. I think one yep. of the best ones is the Day of the Triffid. Oh, um, yeah. Which plants come to life, and they're fucking creepy. I'm sorry. Even now, the Triffids are creepy. Take that, the happening. Take <laughs> that, Seriously, fucking Shamalama Ding Dong. I think that's more horrifying because what we're seeing there is uh, a social guilt. It's, uh, it's a social acceptance. The atomic bomb still is the, the greatest murder weapon to ever be created. And we mm-hmm. as humans made it. We decided that this was a necessary thing. The fact that it exists damns us as a race, as far as I'm concerned. The fact that we decided to kill so many people at once so easily, we we don't deserve any sort of salvation. And that's what I find the most interesting uh, about these films. Because what we have is the Earth turning on us, or like in the case of the blob, something outside of Earth coming to eradicate us because we fucking suck. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and and that, that's really what, you know, pretty much all the all the alien sci-fi movies, that, that's really all they do. Um, you know, they're not coming here to, to really study us. They're not coming here to learn from us. They're coming here to annihilate us because we suck. <laughs> that's really what it comes down to. Um, and and it's, it's a lesson we didn't learn. We literally nope. had all these movies telling us what not to do, and we have not learned the lesson. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. It's um, it's history repeating itself over and over and over again. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> uncomfortable pause again. I I, oh, I I think I mean I think that pretty much covers the the. <laughs> The 1950s. Um, now we're going to get into my era. <laughs> Woohoo! Take it away, Rob. So in the 1960s, obviously, you had movies before this, but I'm not even going to touch on any of them. Um, there are lists out there that everybody can peruse 
Um, to me, the the game changer, the game changer for every single slasher film to come out um, from that moment on um, would be Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Mm-hmm. Uh, every movie, every movie to come out from then on was affected by Psycho. We can't just we yeah. can't just it to horror. Okay, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I can get behind that as well. Um, you you had you had a simple book um that that became so much more because Alfred Hitchcock put his hands on it um it it touched a a nerve with people because for me it was the first and now psycho was not the first horror movie that i saw the first horror movie that i ever saw was from my basement in the crack of a doorway watching nightmare on elm street um on tv that was the first horror movie I ever saw because I grew up in a, um, I'm going to call it a pseudo Christian family. <laughs> hmm. uh, we did go to church every Sunday. Um, horror was really not in our house. Um, I do remember the night that we bought a VCR, my parents renting and not letting us see, and I couldn't see it for, for years was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, and that was probably when that first came out on VHS. So maybe what, 83, 84, somewhere in that range. Something like that. Yeah. Um, but when I went back and one of the first things that I, I saw on a whim was, was psycho because I had seen psycho two, um, <laughs> or no, I believe it was psycho three. I saw oh, on, man. on, on TV, <laughs> um, and I was intrigued by it. it. It's a better film than people give it credit for. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's got, uh, what's his name? Uh, Henry Thomas. Well, yeah. <laughs> no, that's Psycho 4. Well, that's right. It is Psycho 4. That's My Psycho bad. 4 the beginning. My yeah. That's Psycho, right. Psycho 3 had Dennis Franz in it. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. <laughs> and he managed the hotel. Um, but it made me want to go back and see the original. So I, right around that time on TV, Alfred Hitchcock presents was on TV. Um, exactly. And those stories linked me in with the twilight zone and dark room, um, and other things that I was, you know, watching. So I wanted to go back and watch the original and it did not, I, I don't even know how to explain it. It, it freaked me out on a level where even I was afraid to go in the shower. Um, you know, and even to this day, like when I'm in a shower in the, ha- in the house by myself, I'm freaked out all the time. And that would never have happened if it weren't for psycho, not even it just, no, just not at all. Um, you know, you know what's crazy. Um, here's something I want to know. Um, Alfred Hitchcock, has one of the most prolific careers in film history. He made uh, at least one film a year for decades. I think he came out with his first film when he was in his 20s. He made so many films and lived long enough that he remade one of his own films. He made like dozens and dozens of films. And out of those films, two Arguably three of them are horror, but that is what he's remembered for. Correct, and, right. and that is one of, I, I just think horror is, that's how powerful it is. You could make a dozen thrillers. 
a dozen spy dramas, a dozen mysteries with stars as big as Cary Grant and Jimmy fucking Stewart. But all you have to do is make one horror film, and that is what you will remember it are for, forever, forever. Well, I mean, especially when you make one on the level of Psycho. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there were people that, like, and I'm sure they did it back in the day, going back to that silent film. Um, but people were, were running out of the theater. And, you know, there were notices up, please don't tell people the ending of the movie. Um, you know, there were, there were so many things happening with that movie when it came out. It was like Endgame, man. It was the yeah. Endgame of the time. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And thank God, I mean, thank God there was no internet because, you know, that movie on its own, if if it didn't have the the mystery behind it, if the internet was out there then, I don't know that that movie becomes as big as it as it is now. Um, you, and it's you're not giving enough credit to Alfred Hitchcock because the book existed. The yes, book was out. People could have read it. He went out and he bought up every copy he could so no one could read it. That put, I did not know. <laughs> he put so many things into effect so no one could spoil it. He had people waiting in the theaters. He had a strict rule that once the film started, you could not go in, which was a big deal because uh, going to the theaters – wasn't what it is now. You didn't go right. and watch a movie and stay quiet and enjoy it. Most of the time, um, especially in like the 50s, you went for a day. My grandfather would tell me he would every Sunday, he would take all like seven of his children because, you know, no right. um, to the theaters every Sunday where they would watch like you'd watch the news, you'd watch the cartoons, you'd watch the serials and you'd usually get a double feature, you know? So you were there all day up and about talking with friends, kids are running about playing with toys. And then psycho came out and you weren't allowed to go into the uh, theater after the film started. You had to show up on time. That was the first film that made it important not to miss anything. You had to show up. You couldn't talk. You had to pay attention or you were fucked. You were going to miss out on the <laughs> fucking film of the generation. Um, so I, I just think it's, I think we need to, but whatever, I'm done. I got nothing. And of course, you know, that began that whole gamut with like William Castle and doing the whole, you know, the gimmick yep. uh, horror films. Um, Genius. Genius. And, yeah, basically, you know, all that sort of stuff. But yeah, in the 1960s, Psycho definitely changed the game to where, um, you know, the mindset at that point was really more more psychological horror films were basically coming into play yes. uh, in the 1960s. It was more about Mad Men and and people with like with like with like serious like issues. <laughs> oh yeah, and, and, um, well, I, I I would agree with you. I think. The 60s is more internalized, you know, a lot of what we start seeing is less about an external conflict between some sort of monstrous other and is more a representation right. of um, psychological conflicts going on, um, like Psycho um, and even even films like Night of the Living Dead and Rosemary's Baby, which are both arguably supernatural films, I think what we're seeing there is a representation right. of an Absolutely. internal sociopolitical conflict. Correct. Well, and, and, and look at, look at Janet Lee's character. Look at Marion. Uh, she stole money. 
and she's running away and she you know is sexual she's a she's a strong sexual woman the first yes. scene of her in bed with her guy that yep. was unheard of and that was i i have to say that crane shot coming into coming into that building is one of my favorite scenes in any movie ever i don't know why i like that opening so much but i just do um and the the movie was horribly i'm sorry horribly remade um you know, years later in a shot by shot remake. And it was just, Dan Hake's and butthole. I love Vince Vaughn. I love Vince Vaughn. And it was just, yes, it was shockingly bad. It was shockingly bad. Well, I, mean, um, I don't, I don't know if it was shockingly bad. Whoever sat down and said, let's make a hit. Let's remake a Hitchcock film shot for shot. That person <laughs> was shockingly stupid. Well, that too. Um, there's a book out there um, that I actually picked up at a used bookstore here in Morristown. Um, it's called Psycho Behind the Scenes of a Classic Thriller. It's by Christopher Nickens and Janet Lee. Um, and I've I've only glossed over a lot of it because I just have not had the time to sit down and read books. And I've had this book for like six months, um, maybe even more than that. And everybody that I've talked to in the past about psycho says, if you're a psycho fan, it's a must read. So I just wanted to drop that out there. Um, I'll bring the book. If anybody wants to read it next time I see y'all um, it, it from the things that I've read in it um, by Janet Lee. I mean, Janet Lee was emotionally scarred by the movie period. Well, um, that, that was, that was Hitchcock's fault. Correct. Yes. And, and, and Hitchcock was a dick. We can watch the I, I do have to say the thing that from this point on, from the sixties on, um, well, mostly in the, in the seventies with exploitation or sex, sex exploitation, um, a lot of horror became about tits and ass. We all mm-hmm. know that, yep. you know, there's no shying away from it. And I've heard people tell me a million times. I saw Janet Lee nude in this movie. Yeah. She was nude. Nobody saw her. And I've gone back on purpose, on purpose, and slow mode, especially in the age of like Blu-ray. I mean, you can really break it down frame by frame. Mm-hmm. Um, she's not nude. I mean, she's nude, but you cannot see anything. Well, and for for Hitchcock to be able to film and and do that work in that manner, um, it it puts it puts what's happening on your on your plate. You have to you have to imagine what's happening in that scene. And, you know, you think you're seeing her nude. You think you're, you know, but you're not, you're just, that's not happening. Um, So it's also why so many people think they see the knife go in when they They don't, they don't. I, and what's funny is I remember the, when I first watched that um, I insisted, I saw her nude. (laughs) I was like, Oh my God, Janet Lee's nude. Um, But, I remember seeing the knife and saying the knife didn't even go in her. They kind of just like it pushes up against her stomach. You know, there's a couple, couple shots where a couple seconds where you actually see that or split seconds, so to speak. Um, But yeah, I mean, psycho touches a, a, a real visceral thing. Everybody takes showers. It's the same reason why, you know, the slasher films later on worked. I mean, every, everybody has a, has a babysitter has babysat themselves. Everybody goes camping. Well, um, all that stuff. You, you can't watch psycho and you can't help, but the next time you're in a motel, think, well, fuck, 
<laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like is is there a people behind this behind this picture or is there a people behind this or that? Yeah. Motels are creepy at the best of times. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's um again, it, it changed the game for me. Um that was really what uh what I loved actually one of the first things I wrote and I was very, very, not very young, but I, I was young. I was too young to be writing this, but I wrote a sequel to psycho. Oh, oh wow. God. And like my, my fifth grade or sixth grade teacher did not like that at all. Yeah. They thought I was uh, special. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, it, it, it was, it, it was written as a, I don't know, as, as just like a, a goof. Um, but yeah, so that was one of the, the movies that, that changed, changed the game for me. I think it changed the game for, like Joey said, everybody. Um, it definitely changed the, the, the game for horror, uh, you know, and really, to me, was probably the first, if you want to call it, slasher. I mean, sure. he was the first slasher. <laughs> I totally agree with, with what Joey's saying too about you know the whole. Well, there, there was there was a couple of different horror movements going on in the '60s. I mean, you had you definitely had this because uh, a, a lot of a lot of attitudes were changing. Attitudes towards sex, attitudes towards violence. Um, <clears throat> a lot of that was was changing in the '60s. That's a lot of that was because you know we were heading into Vietnam. Um, you know, we were still dealing with the Cold War and all that shit. And so there was a lot of different movements going on in horror at that time. There was a psychological aspect of it, like you said. I just, I was just thinking of um, Carnival of Souls as another good example of a movie that's a horror film that's really about that internal struggle with like your own sanity or your own, you know, psychological health or whatever. Because you know that whole woman, you know, you can, is she dead? Is she not dead? She's dealing with all these ghastly images and stuff. Um, but then on the other side, you also had, um, you know, like. Roger Corman came on, uh, came around, came on around that time with, you know, with a lot of like, uh, you know, crazy films, um, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, stuff, you know, stuff like Blood Feast and stuff like that, where, where people were starting to play around with, with violence more, uh, you know, showcasing more violent, uh, stuff in films. Uh, and then at the same time, you also had, uh, that was when Hammer, Hammer Horror started coming into play. Now, granted, they they were they had start technically started in the late fifties, but they were came to prominence in the sixties, and so they had another movement in the sixties that kind of brought back gothic horror, but did it in such a way that upped the the nudity and the violence, or the nudity and the gore aspect. Uh, but it was but it but what it did is it reinvigorated people and it reminded people of the Universal monsters and it brought the gothic horror back into. Uh, back into the public eye as well. Right. Um, you know, sexuality and nudity kind of became like a more of a more of an okay thing mm-hmm. uh, during that time. And, you know, obviously during the 60s, you had the Summer of Love mm-hmm. and Hate-Ashbury and, you know, the hippie movement and all that stuff. Although that wasn't, you know, none of that was really toward until towards the end. But uh, but still, I mean, it, it just became sexuality became okay in the 60s. Right. Um, Know, you were out of that leave it to beaver stage from you know like the the fifties, right? <laughs> well, they had the Brady Bunch, but well, yeah. Now I will say, like, definitely uh, out of the sixties, I, I was I was really more uh, the stuff out of the sixties. I was more in tune with the Hammer stuff, just because again my 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 love for Universal. 
Um, and I know we had this conversation uh, uh, when we uh, when we weren't recording, so I'll, I'll reiterate it here. I I am more of a universal horror fan than I am. Ham- I like don't get me don't get me wrong. I love Hammer horror. I love everything. I love Christopher Lee. I love Peter Cushing. I love that they took basically all of the monsters that Universal had been dealing with and, and did their own take on them. Um, but at the same time, uh, like we, like I mentioned, like we mentioned, um, uh, basically, um, is that they're so British. They're so dry. Um, right. the, the, the gore is great. The, the, the effects are great when, but the thing is, is in order to get to the meat, in order to get to the, to the good parts, you have to sit through like 20, 30 minutes of people talking about, oh, this wooden stake that I had, I, I got it from Ashbury, or it was from a special tree, blah, 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 you know, or, or, or some, you know, like, um, um, you know, or, or, or something else, like some huge long conversation about something going on, and, you know, um, but at the same time, it's, you know, especially when the, the, uh, with, with the, with Peter Cushing and the way he, you know, he just had this air about him. I mean, I can listen to Peter Cushing talk for days, so I mean, that's that's fine. Oh there. hell yeah! Um, yeah, but, absolutely. And, and Christopher Lee as well. I mean, Christopher Lee like the presence, but um, and so yeah, the the, the Hammer Horror stuff was good, but there are times where I'll sit down and watch. Um, oh shit! What's the what's the werewolf one called? I forget. Um, uh, fuck. Uh, um, I, Joe. I, I, I need to I need to turn in my geek card. I I failed. <laughs> I don't remember every single Hammer fucking horror film that came out. You do realize how many Hammer horror films came out, right? Well, I, I think I think it's the only werewolf one they did because it had um, the Curse of the Werewolf. Curse of the Werewolf. Thank you. It had Oliver Reed in it, uh, which again, Oliver Reed is amazing in that movie. The, the effects are amazing. But I remember I just I I actually watched it again last year. It was on Amazon Prime for a pre period of time. And I watched it, and there were times where I was struggling to get through it because it just it, it there's just moments that drag so much, um, and you have to you basically you really have to 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 to, to hang on to get from the next you know from one adventurous piece to the next. Um, but that said, I still have a huge love because of the gothic horror aspect of it. Um, and that's pretty much all I'll say about that. I that's you know I just I just wanted to because we were mentioning that and we wanted to bring it up. And uh, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I will say my uh, my other favorite movie from this decade um, is without a doubt the seminal classic Night of the Living Dead. Yes, you got to bring Marissa coming on. to get what's Mar- that? You got to bring Marissa on. She loves that film. <laughs> They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it, Johnny! You're ignorant. <laughs> I, I had the I had the pleasure of working with her, Judo Thode. Really? Yes. Um, that is awesome. Uh, one I don't I don't really do much work with them anymore. But there was another another friend of mine, um, who was a director. His name is Matt Cloud. Um, the movie is still in post production, or not actually it's still in it's still in production because he, he's having a hard time raising the money to finish the film. But he 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 wrote a prequel. Uh, to Night of the Living Dead called Night of the Living Dead Genesis. And he actually managed to get Judith O'Day. Uh, of course, he had, he had to pay her a pretty decent amount, but he managed to get her uh, to come back and play an older version of Barbara because uh, the whole, and I don't want to spoil too much about it, but um, 
it starts off the the framing device around the movie is you find out that Barbara is in a mental institution. She survived the events of, of, of the original movie. She's in a mental institution. She's an old lady now. And basically a, a, a news team comes in and says, what really happened during that, during that, that time. And so she goes in the story. And of course there's going to be some new details and some retconning and stuff, but I played a security guard. We, we, we actually filmed in a, uh, in an old abandoned, uh, um, mental institution in West Virginia. And we did this on one of the coldest days in December of like 20, God, it was like 2016 or whatever. Um, and so there was no heat. Judith O'Day was wearing nothing but a, but, but, a uh, but a hospital gown and was sitting in a wheelchair, fucking consummate professional. She was amazing, has a great sense of humor. Um, but I got to work with her for a day, basically pushing her around as a security guard at the mental institution. And fucking, I love her to death. She's an amazing lady. Had so much fun working with her. I have pictures, even. That's um, awesome. But I just, I just want to throw that out there. Like that's, and of course, you know, I we we sat there and we talked about the original movie, the whole like, you know, what, what in between takes and stuff. And you know, she you gave us little tidbits of information and just you know some of the experiences she had behind the scenes and everything. It was it was really really a great experience. But um, long story short, too late. I, I I do too, I too love Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> it, 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 it's it's phenomenal. Um, one of the one of the biggest things that I remember of of that movie, um, and, and Joe, this goes back to what you were saying before about um, black people in horror movies. Oh yeah, in cinema. Um, I was keenly aware for the first time in my movie viewing life that I was watching a black man and that in the movie, at least he was different. You know what I mean? Right. So, I mean, you, you definitely weren't the only one Jordan Peele, uh, list night of the living dead is one of the only five horror, horror films, uh, about black people. Uh, right. So, yeah, I mean, I, the, the way he was treated, in the movie, um, it, it, that's really what it. It wasn't so much that I was keenly aware of a black man being in a film. It was more that I was keenly aware of the racism. You you should also think about it from like a black person's point of view because suddenly you've got this film. Everything goes to shit. This guy runs in, and like he isn't just he isn't just fighting for his life. He is the hero, and he's not yeah. taking shit. A one person, he says, if you stay up here, you're going to listen to me, which is fucking unheard of at the right, time right. for any black person, let alone he's he is literally wrestling uh, a, a crazed white woman to the ground. It's for her own good. But yeah. we're seeing that on screen like that's a big fucking deal. Yeah, absolutely. You, you know, what's funny about that, though, is in interviews, anytime – Anytime Romero is asked about the casting of that movie, Romero insists that he did not cast Dwayne yeah. Jones uh, on the account of the whole racist angle. He said that was never his intention. He only cast Dwayne Jones because he was the right man for the part, that he was the one that tested the best for the character. I, I, I kind of want to believe that because George Romero does seem like a clueless type of guy. But at the same time... The images we see in that film oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
like specifically at the end with the the white lynch mob showing mm-hmm. up, tossing people onto bodies. That's like there those are direct parallels to oh, yeah. film like real life newsreels that we see of of the of like uh the the Selma march and and things like that. They're they're so close that it, it it's uncomfortable. So and, and- I, Oh, I don't know if I believe that or not, you know? I see. That's the thing. I, I don't know if I believe it either because you're right. And and, and, and it, to add to the whole lynch mob aspect of it, the way they take him out, like they just see movement. They don't even question it. They just shoot him right in the head. They don't care if he's a zombie or not. And that is the same type of mentality yeah. that, you know, that was being attributed towards black people uh, during that time. It was like, it doesn't matter who you are. Like, you're, you know, you're different. You're going down. And so that's – and. And on top of that, knowing knowing for a fact that all three of Romero's, well, even 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 going into the the, the, the later ones uh, of the series, like Land of the Dead and stuff, but all three of those original Dead movies were all social commentaries of some sort. So you knew he, you know he had that you had he had, he at least had an inkling of that in mind when he when he did what he did. Yes, absolutely, and. and- there, there is a, and I, I am, I am appalled by this even reading this now, but his performance was called, he was called a contemporary, a comparatively calm and resourceful Negro. Oh my God. That's <laughs> what he was called. Wow. In quote. Wow. And again, I go, just like Donnie said just before, the guy wakes up the next morning you know, here's the here here's the gunfire outside, and immediately he's shot in the fucking forehead. Yep. <laughs> I mean, and every single cop in that movie, all the uh, all those people, they were all what they were all good old boys. Yep. You know, I mean, really, that's what it was. Um, so again, horror as a socio political uh, thing. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. So it's, um, but still, I mean, overall, again, there wasn't anything, there wasn't anything spectacular about it. Um, You know, the the special effects, none of that stuff. I mean, it was made for a hundred and some grand, Um, you know, low low 100s. What's that? I think that makes it better in some spots. Like all the shots of them ripping the the, the people to pieces and eating the flesh. That's real nasty meat they're eating on screen. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. And there are so many films through, especially in horror, um, throughout the years that, you know, really woke up independent filmmakers in general and they said, wow, we can make a really, really important film for not a lot of money. Um, You know, and, and make a lot of money <laughs> just by using simple, simple things instead of these, you know, big, big, huge special effects. Because, again, there really wasn't anything, you know, that stood out in the movie and made you say, oh, wow, how'd they do this? How'd they do that? How'd they do the other? So, yes, another another example of an important movie from, from that decade. Rosemary's Baby is doing for women what Night of the Living Dead is doing for African-Americans. Good. That's true. I mean, I don't, I don't think, I, I don't think I need to say anything else. If you haven't seen Rosemary's baby, go see Rosemary's baby. It's uncomfortable. 
even now. It is it's very uncomfortable. And, and like you mentioned earlier, again, it plays into the whole psychological aspect. Like, is 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 what's happening to her really happening to her, or is she just slowly losing her mind? No, uh, see, I can't. Uh, no, it's really happening to her, in my opinion, because I think the important aspect of the film is that something terrible is happening to her and no one believes her. Not only right. does no one believe her, but the people in her life are conspiring against her. Her nice, sweet neighbor is drugging her so that she can be raped. Her husband has literally sold her for an acting gig. And in one of the scariest scenes ever put to film, she goes to her doctor, tells her doctor all of this, and then her doctor calls her husband because he doesn't believe her. The, in my opinion, the film does not work if it's all in her head. It has well, no. to be really happening to her. Well, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying for the viewer. I'm saying from her perspective, like the because they're dealing. You're dealing with psychological horror in this aspect where. It's it's like not we we see what's happening to her, but it's it's all about fucking with her mind and, and making her question like whether or not, you know, she's really going through this or whether, you know, basically she's being gaslighted the entire fucking time. Yeah, absolutely. Gaslighted and raped. Yep. But that's what I meant. I didn't I didn't mean like like like, you know, as a viewer, you're questioning it. But I'm just like from her perspective. It's it's an aspect of the film because, like you said, everybody is telling her that that she's that she's making it up or they don't believe her, and so it adds this extra layer of like, well, what the fuck? It's like, is, is what's reality at this point? You right. know, like like I said, it's, it's it's a lot. There's a lot of psychological horror going on as well as supernatural horror. Um, it's a nice little marriage of the two. We apologize for the abrupt ending of this episode. However, we will be finishing it up in a future episode, so stay on the lookout for History of Horror Part Two, Seventies through Today. Thank you all for tuning in and loading up our show this evening. Make sure to subscribe and let us know what you think on our Facebook page. For now, this is Rob signing off and reminding you to make sure you practice shower safety. We are out. 